Welcome to the Wisdom of Compassion, a podcast presented by White Conch Dharma Center. For today's episode, we will be featuring a teaching by Domo Geshe Rinpoche, the spiritual director of White Conch, titled The Perfection of Discipline. In continuing commentary from Patrol Rinpoche's seminal work, Words of My Perfect Teacher, Rinpoche expounds upon the perfection of discipline, one of the six perfections of the Bodhisattva path. Simplicity is a guiding principle. Organization is the structure. Actually doing the work is the activity. Peaceful mind is the result. And sweat is the metabolic deatrice of the process. That was a quote from Rinpoche, and I've always found her teachings on spiritual discipline to be inspiration for me to get about actually doing the work. Enjoy. That uh, uh, we prayed very hard. I saw sweat coming off your brow as you prayed to become competent in the six perfections. Huh? What is the last line? I will practice the six perfections. Beads of sweat breaking out on your forehead in, in the hard work that you are doing to, uh, to practice the six perfections. Even saying, I will practice the six perfections uh, is a, a kind of unbreakable vow. Now you all in the circle of unbreakable vow, huh? like that. Wouldn't that be great? And uh, I noticed that uh, not everyone broke into a sweat. Okay, nobody broke into a sweat. And uh, that's okay, uh, because uh, uh, we still have not fully understood uh, what are the six perfections that uh, in your uh, daily practice, three times, and uh, during your uh, practice of your sadhana, perhaps many times during the day, that you uh, recall uh, the refuge vows and your promise to practice the six perfections. And so we can't say that it's for nothing, that uh, we must think that there would be a that there would be a kind of uh, cumulative interest, minimum, minimum, that a cumulative curiosity. What are these six perfections? And why am I promising to do that? And anyway, I Buddhist, so I'll say, who am I anyway? Huh? Like that. This is a joke. And so we want to, uh, we want to uh, simultaneously discover the unreality of the self and uh, as well as make promises uh, using the illusory self that we don't have, and uh, understanding the six perfections. And so uh, if, we were, if we were lesser uh, kinds of people, uh, that we would dismiss uh, our uh, anticipation of the practice of the six perfections, or our vow to do that by saying that uh, the ultimate unreality of all phenomena supersedes any vow that I might take uh, to practice the six perfections. So there, let's have another beer, huh? like that. And so, uh, what they call self-satisfaction, smug self-satisfaction, uh, replaces our uh, actual anticipation of the vow. You know, great Chen Raisi, 
great Chenrezig, the Buddha of Compassion, in his Bodhisattva form, uh, gained the full vision, gained the full vision of the scope of the issues that suffered, that uh, plague a living beings, that the amount of suffering was so tremendous. And although he had worked for a very long time, that the amount of the suffering that remained in, with living beings was so tremendous that the only thing he could do was cry, you know? And so uh, a great Chen Rezi finally discovered the vow. He found the precursor, actually, of the vow, which was understanding the scope of the problem. Hmm? That, uh, that remains for us to discover the scope of the problems. Now, if we really understood, if we held the vastness of our own nature, our capacity to hold the understanding of the vastness of the problem, that I think we too would cry a lot. And uh, there are many people, kind-hearted people in the West, uh, on a regular basis, on a regular basis, uh, ask me, how, how is it possible uh, for, to tolerate uh, the sufferings of living beings. That uh, when I think about, in many different ways they say this, uh, when I think about uh, the suffering in the world, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. But this is not the vow. <laughs> this, is, this is saying, this is impossible, so I'm not going to try. This is not the vow, Chen Rezi. Chen Rezi cried and cried and cried and out of his broken heart he discovered his capacity to accomplish the vow but it wasn't done by himself alone. That what broke in him with the floodgate of tears, this great bodhisattva, great being, was, they say, born of the tears of came a, a two forms of uh, Tara, etc., etc., who said, yes, I'll help you. Well, this sounds very sweet, you know? This sounds like a good cooperative behavior, but it's not like that. That the tears and the, and the additional uh, strength, uh, Chen Rezi discovered that he was not the one. The very thing which I have been telling you, and many of you for many years now, that you are not the one, that we can discover, we can uncover deeper and deeper levels of understanding that we are not the one. And in that way, we are able to uh, find new forms of strength even you look, for those of you who have been practicing now for a number of years, if you look at yourself, if you remember the way you used to be two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, etc., that you would say, I could never have done the things that I do now. I could never have done the prayers and the meditations uh, that I do now with the convictions that I hold in my capacity back then. 
that there's something that has happened to me over time that has made me more capable even before the enlightenment experience that you have become more capable of a greater understanding and greater capacity to help others isn't that so and so we rely on ourselves uh, to act in accordance with our capacity which we have developed isn't that so it would be a shame to think we have to go back to zero every time. That we, in fact, have become, uh, we have become uh, capable. We have become capable. And <laughs> we have become capable. And so did Chen Rezi. And so did Chen Rezi. Bodhisattva Chen Rezi, post-enlightenment, Bodhisattva Chen Rezi knew that he could rely on his own good qualities and his own development, his own knowledge, his own experience to be able to help others. Just like you and Chen Rezi found his wall just like you. And it may be a, a shift of your own uh, awareness on a particular day that has caused you to falter and become uh, deficient, to become uh, weakened in your vows, to become weakened in your resolve. And what do you do? Chen Rezi cried until his heart broke open that uh, we have, uh, we have uh, resources as well. And this leads into our discussion this evening about the next, uh, the next phase of the Six Transcendent Perfections, which is Transcendent Discipline. Transcendent Discipline. We're on page 238 at the bottom. And uh, uh, I'm going to we're going to look at it in a number of different ways. I don't know how much time we have here, but we're going we're gonna to start. I read from uh, Words of My Perfect Teacher by Patru Rinpoche, the great iconoclast. You know, Patru Rinpoche may have been the role model and uh, for a number of iconoclastic uh, uh, wisdom beings of uh, of of the of the present time, you know, some kind of uh, scary wisdom beings, even in the West. Who knows? Maybe they're reincarnations of Patro Rinpoche. Anyway, never mind that. <coughs> Transcendent discipline consists of avoiding negative actions. <coughs> undertaking positive actions and bringing benefit to others. And uh, uh, we go on, we go on with Patra Rinpoche's point that he is making. Avoiding ne negative actions, this means rejecting like poison all 10 negative actions of body, speech, and mind that are not directed toward the benefit of others. And undertaking positive actions, this means 
always creating as many sources of good for the future as possible by always doing what, whatever positive actions you can, regardless of how insignificant they may seem. I just want to go back here. As the common saying goes, positive actions just happen. While our mouths or hands are free, Negative actions, when we move around or sit. Mm. Only by always checking with great mindfulness, vigilance, and care, and by trying hard to do good and refrain from evil, can you avoid committing many serious negative actions, even while simply amusing yourself. Okay. So, what Patro Rinpoche uh, is telling us is uh, rather common, the rather common uh, advice, important, important, but common advice to all Buddhists to avoid the ten non-virtuous actions of killing, stealing, etc., etc., and by the avoidance of those negative actions, that what remains, if you avoid all negative actions, whatever you do will be positive. This, this is the, the nickel version of 10 non-virtues, 10 virtues, like that, which I've given teachings on. If you're interested, you can look at However, what I'm more interested in talking about are, is, a, is a continuation of the discussion which we had at Joyful Path going back about a month or so ago which was the ethical underpinnings. Now, these uh, ethical underpinnings are the actual, are the actual actions uh, which we are indulging in. In other words, at any time of the day or night that we have a tremendous amount of influences pressing in upon us to behave in accordance with one type of model or another. Isn't that so? That we have, uh, for example, some kind of physical ill which makes us crabby. You know? True? And so someone says hello and our physical uh, unwell-being uh, would like to rebuke them sharply or to speak roughly because that influence of our uh, illness and uh, we may on the other hand have recently imbibed a large amount of alcohol hmm. we're going to say that as an influence and so someone says hello how are you and you might accidentally fall all over them, actually tripping, and kiss them on both cheeks and tell them how much you love them. <laughs> all of which is completely mindless. Huh? 
like that and then proceed to vomit all over them or something like that. <laughs> so, or you may have just come away from a Dharma lecture and uh, someone says, how are you? And you might have a completely different answer. Or you may have come from seeing a friend uh, in the hospital who has just passed away. And so again, someone says, how are you? And you have a completely different answer. And so we are constantly being uh, massaged, I'm going to say, by influences which we create or others have created or out of compassion we expose ourselves or by adventitious, uh, adventitious uh, 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 situation, perhaps such as, such as becoming ill, that it wasn't my fault, it wasn't anybody's fault. And so this becomes who we are, is our response to the influences which we happen to be experiencing either internally or externally, not even talking about karma. We don't even have to talk about karma, karmic influences. We have enough influences coming to us in our daily life that we can just simply go with the flow and whatever is happening at that moment, that's what we're reactive to. So this, uh, not as, uh, uh, this not as, uh, as helpful if we want to have a self-directed life. And so in our Buddhist meditations, in our contemplations and cogitations, or simply driving down the road something strikes you like a thunderbolt and you think, hey, I'm not going to do that kind of thing anymore. I'm going to be this different person. I'm going to be different from now on. I think everyone has said this, huh? And so we try to tie that good thought and hang on to it by tying it to something inside us. What is that thing called? I don't know. What is it called? What do you think? Our root mind? Our sense of uh, ethical proportion? Our own ethics? How about if we say that we tie that good determination uh, to our uh, ethics? And when we do that, we touch something inside us that says, I will, uh, I will refrain from this. This is my personal vow. This behavior I will refrain from. And so I am going to change my mind. This is the value of ethics. 
is that we, by our own willpower, even though in the past we have not been capable of it, by our own willpower, we decide we are going to change. And we promise our own ethical structure that we are going to have a new beginning from that moment. And then it's like, uh, you know, it's like, in, in a way, it's sort of like the punchline of a joke. <laughs> that uh, someone tell a joke, but the people don't laugh immediately. They have to kind of think about it, and then they laugh. And so someone who's a very good joke teller, they wait for the beat. They have this a beat that goes on. One, two, three, and then the laugh comes. Huh? True? Like that? And uh, so, like that, like that, if we are serious, we make this decision, then we don't just rush off and do uh, something else, but we wait for the, I'm going to call it wait for the beat. And while that is sinking in, while that is sinking in, we don't do anything. Because what's happening is that this is shifting other things inside. That every high quality ethical decision that you make changes something else inside you. And that means that the domino effect or the repercussions of your decisions, your ethical decisions, uh, your ethical decisions have an effect on how your other perceptions or your other choices uh, are uh, comfortable in expressing themselves. Now I say it that way uh, because this hinges very much on what Patru Rinpoche uh, means and what I would think means by discipline, means that you have both of these ideas inside you, you have your ethical, your ethical structure which you have made a change and yet without having a complete change, without having a complete change, that there is a, uh, that there is a uh, time period when you are challenged in your own ethical structure. Now, I think whole life passes this way for people who have strong ethics. I think whole life you are challenged in your discipline. That you have to increase your capacity. You have to shift more awareness to the ethical to the ethical uh, underpinnings, which are positive, and make them strong, give them what they call like little strength building, strength building uh, <laughs> exercises. I have to tell a story. We were at, uh, we at uh, St. Vinnie's today, like that. Everybody here in this area knows St. Vincent de Paul, secondhand store. And uh, we were wandering around, and uh, 
looking for different bedding things and uh, this and that which were needed for the uh, for the hospice and retreat center and uh, oh just sort of out of the corner of my eye there were three uh, young people in their 20s who were uh, uh, one young man had found a piece of sports equipment which was a strength building uh, ratchet thing that made some kind of a sound and he would go and then push it out again while the other his other two friends uh, watched him in great admiration that he was capable of this amount of strength huh and uh, they all standing close around and this piece of machinery was not uh, this equipment was not very large and so as he was doing this, they were saying, oh, that looks so hard to do. That appears so difficult. How can you do that? And what did he do? He speeded up. <laughs> and as I walked away smiling, he was continuing uh, to ratchet this machine and uh, to display his capacity uh, for this. And uh, in fact, showing them how easy it was for him. Huh? And so we all recognize uh, situations that we've been in where we are uh, displaying our uh, self-discipline and uh, uh, we are either admired or we are laughed at or people wonder what the heck we are doing. And uh, it causes something to rise up inside and somehow this strengthens our self-discipline and for some people in fact before they weren't sure whether the ten non-virtues and the ten virtues were worth doing it just seems so, so innocuous it doesn't seem related to reality uh, but uh, when we are uh, when we are questioned in our values or when we are uh, when we are uh, admired in our values, it hardly matters when it's attention brought, brought uh, to our strength of mind uh, that we think, hey, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I'm getting stronger. I'm getting better at this. Uh, and uh, this actually, the, you know, the Tibetan geshes, Tibetan geshes are considered to be a pretty stubborn lot that, uh, that uh, uh, austere behavior and uh, strict adherence to the principles of right conduct. I mean, they're really more strict than anybody on the face of the earth, annoyingly so. <laughs> I didn't, when I was in my just previous life, when I was uh, uh, Geshe, I also like that. Now I can say, because and now I can say with a little distance like that, but a stubborn, very stubborn. And uh, these, uh, these seem to be hallmarks of Geshe training, mm. especially Kadampa, from the old Kadampa Geshe uh, tradition that we have certain uh, standards of uh, uh, stubbornness which must be upheld. <laughs> but uh, in your ethical system, in your own personal ethics, that we could name many uh, aspects of your own personal ethics that you unbelievably stubborn about. <laughs> that uh, if, someone, if someone challenges you in your ethics, 
uh, you'll rise up like a tiger uh, to promote uh, wellness and health or uh, what you feel is the, uh, is the correct mindset. And uh, 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 like that, like that, that our ethical structure is what we are directly looking at when we are challenged. That we have a gaze uh, which sees the outer world and then our inner eyes are viewing our internal environment and choosing which influences we wish to uh, be, have with us, to stand beside us. And the hallmark, the hallmark of someone who has a great deal of discipline is someone who makes decisions which influences they want to have standing beside them as opposed to which influences are coming naturally. If everything came easily to you, if no, no one ever uh, sort of, uh, what they say, uh, like left a hundred dollars on a table and walked away. <laughs> I'm not saying anyone here would, would take the hundred dollars, but if no one ever left money hanging around, if no, one, uh, if no one ever had a hard ethical decision that you had to make, that uh, if you were never, if, every, if this world, let me say it this way, if this was a perfect world, ethics would not be needed at all. That we would have no challenges to our discipline, that we would have nothing we would have nothing that we needed to lean against in order to make us strong. And so, uh, you see many times people who have lives of great ease, everything just goes well for them, everything is uh, sort of laid out for them, they never had to uh, struggle for anything, they never had to want for anything, that it is not easy, it is not easy for people like that to have a strong ethical system because they've never been challenged. They've never had to be challenged. They've never had to make uh, decisions uh, that where they may not have been the winner. Someone who has things very easy always assumes that they will be the winner that they will be the winner in the outcome of that situation. Isn't that so? And when they inadvertently are not, then they very often have a breakdown in their, um, how you would call it, in their uh, reaction, huh? Composure. In their composure, in their reactions to their world. Hmm? And so this, uh, this, uh, to me, this to me is discipline. That having and developing uh, a moral structure or an ethical structure of how we are going to react and then holding our gaze to our, to our ethical structure while we are gazing at the world and seeing the situation and the milieu that we're uh, involved in uh, makes us capable of dealing with daily life and dealing with 
whatever comes to us. Hmm? Make sense? And so, uh, and so we have for, as a beginning, as a beginning uh, that uh, we develop mindfulness. That mindfulness is the, uh, is the root of discipline uh, because if you do not have, if you do not have an alert state uh, to your own interactions with the world, uh, that uh, situations will allow you to be caught up and you will not be able to, you will not be able to get out of situations easily. You will regularly paint yourself into an ethical corner where you are trapped by your own words and by your own uh, 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 influences that you have allowed to overcome you because it was the easy way to do, because you were mindless. However, with a strong discipline and ethical uh, structure that you will always be vigilant for your own behavior. You know, the downside of this is that many people who have strong discipline uh, feel that it is others that need to be disciplined first. And then once they have tamed everyone around them, then they then can exist peacefully, go with the flow because everyone is under control. Huh? This is another way that we, <laughs> this sort of like uh, uh, what I, dealing with others in a kind of classroom uh, discipline situation. In other words, the teacher the teacher uh, cannot feels that they cannot teach while the children are all unruly. And so they make all of the children behave and hold their hands quietly, and in that way the teacher can speak and be heard. This is one form of discipline, isn't that so? But the, this very often carries over into families where the person who, uh, a person would say that I can't, uh, I can't, uh, 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 I can't meditate until everybody is perfectly quiet, or I can't uh, get along with this person, and so that person has to, has to be out of my uh, sight. And in fact, you control the entire environment, and then you feel comfortable. This is not discipline. This is not discipline. Instead, you should be able to stand on the corner of 42nd Street and Times Square, and your mind should be composed. That it doesn't matter what people are doing around you. That discipline allows you to be peaceful and to be uh, virtuous wherever you go and you don't need to fix everyone around you. So somewhere between these two extremes is where you probably are that uh, you would want a, what they call a modicum of uh, a peace and quiet in the home. And uh, the rest of it, you will try to pick up and deal with it yourself. Hmm? True? However, if we look at examples such as Chen Rezi, Chen Rezi exposed himself to the full onslaught of the delusions. You know, when, when this story is told, it's always said the sufferings of living beings. But what does that really mean? 
is that he was experiencing the full delusions of all living beings. You know? This would be like stepping into an uncontrolled, insane asylum. People shouting, hurting each other, ripping at their clothes, writhing on the floor, exhibiting their delusions without any regard, without any control at all. This is what Chen Rezi opened himself, herself, to. This is the full extent of the suffering, is the full exposure uh, to the delusions of all living beings. Now you know what the suffering means? That uh, we want to think that the suffering of living beings would be a kind of distillation, a kind of removing from the causes of suffering, not the, not the delusions, not the anger, not the, the harm that living beings, but to stand amongst the harm that living beings are perpetrating on themselves needlessly. This is the suffering of living beings. You know, most Buddhists, we keep it very simple. And we, we say, uh, may all sentient beings end suffering, end suffering. But what does that really mean? Maybe you're not ready to do what Chen Rezi did. And so gradually, we strengthen ourselves in our capacity to endure helping others in the midst of their delusions without feeling harmed ourselves. But in fact, the uh, attitude that Chen Rezi held was uh, seeing perfection itself in its suffering form in its suffering form. Could there be anything worse? It would be like seeing someone who is so intelligent, so competent, who has taken a drug that has made them insane. And they writhing on the floor and babbling how would you feel? You would look at them and you could think, how could you have done that to yourself? How could you have destroyed your potential? There were things that you could have done and now you have to be tied down. This is the, this is the suffering of living beings. Not just how sad they might be, how sick they might be. But having, having painted themselves into a corner where the only logical conclusion in their own minds is suffering and a loss of their potential, a loss of their evolutionary potential. 
And so, with a broken heart, Chen Rezi opened himself to a new level of understanding and more. And he became part of a greater cooperative element. And that is the, and that is the point I want to make. That no longer did Chen Rezi hold universal responsibility. That he became absorbed into a higher life form. You think it was tears, but it actually a breaking open. It was a kind of a kind of new enlightenment, I'm going to say, higher level enlightenment. And he became capable. But it wasn't him alone that Chen Rezi at that time lost his name. He no longer Chen Rezi the Bodhisattva, but he Chen Rezi part of enlightened society who works on these issues in a much different way. He's on his way to becoming a Buddha level being. So anyway, these things get very Difficult to understand, I'm not going to go on and on. However, coming back to your issues regarding discipline, self-discipline, and the 10, perfect, and the ten uh, uh, virtues and non-virtues, and how we, approach, how we approach it with our own ethical system, is that when we, when we reach into our valued ethical system that in a way, in a way, we and our ethical system are like two different people. We could say that our ethical system is the better part of us. Hmm? <laughs> and so when we can't rely because maybe we had too much to drink or too much to smoke like that, woo, and we think, oh God, please help me. And who comes to your rescue but your own ethical system? And uh, you uh, retreat from the influences and you uh, regard your ethical system as your uh, mast that you hold to. You know, sometimes, sometimes we are, uh, we are presented with almost impossible, seductive influences. You're going to be rich. You're going to be famous. And who, who we become at the time of those seductive influences is where your strength of character lies. Now, I'm not saying to be rich and to be famous is wrong. I think it would be terrific. I would be so happy to see all of you rich and famous, as long as you still had time to meditate, hmm? like that. But uh, should we have to pay uh, for fame and money uh, in ways that are antithetical to our own values, mm -hmm. then it becomes 
uh, a decision for your self-discipline. Mm. So the second point, the third point is bringing benefit to others. Patru Rinpoche again says, I wish I had a clock, but anyway, as we have already seen, when you are totally free of wanting anything for yourself, thank you. Thank you. When you are totally free of wanting anything for yourself, the time will have come for you to work directly for the benefit of others, using the four ways of attracting beings. But as a beginner, the way to bring benefit to others is to dedicate to the benefit of all beings all the practice you do while training and undertaking positive actions and avoiding negative ones. You know, part of our discussion that I felt was extremely valuable, uh, that uh, was a kind of a closed group, but I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Was the uh, the miracle of the uh, of the increased ethical values uh, of the modern world? Hmm? You know, most people feel that the ethics of this modern world have really gone downhill. Huh? Isn't that so? But actually, when you begin to examine it. Uh, that we can see that over time that the, uh, that the ethical uh, rules have increased. Uh, for example, for example, the treatment of uh, human beings, the treatment of uh, uh, soldiers, the treatment of the mentally ill, the treatment of, uh, of those who have certain kinds of dread diseases, of people who are not of the same uh, ethnic or uh, ethnic or racial uh, as the as the one who is uh, deciding, that we have uh, uh, even uh, how many people? Oh no, even uh, uh, in wartime, that the uh, care for soldiers is not just for care of the soldiers for uh, for our side but we are also ethically bound to treat and care for the soldiers of the other side uh, when they are captured. And so, and so the regard for human life has actually increased. And the regard for uh, the lives of uh, living creatures such as, uh, such as uh, sea life and uh, uh, animal life, insect life has actually increased if we think about it. And this has only happened, uh, and we discussed at great length, by the individuals, individuals who had such high standards and karmic capacity for being able to influence others that laws were enacted and uh, the world changed for the better due to the ethical actions and those who gathered together uh, to promote these new ethical standards. And the reason why we feel we have less ethical standards is because these important ethical rules 
are broken regularly. True? And these, which by the way, didn't exist before. No one was bound by these ethical rules, but now society binds everyone to these ethical rules. And when they are broken, that the individuals have to be brought to justice. They have to come into alignment. They have to pay for their misdeeds and they have to change. If these ethical structures were unknown, then anybody could do whatever they wish to. If we look at the power of kings in the ancient days, kings could arbitrarily imprison and even kill whoever they pleased. They had no ethical boundaries at all. And that's what they did. That there were very few benevolent kings. This is why, even in early Buddhism, that, the, that it was prayed that kings would be benevolent and that they would rule their people well. There wouldn't have been any need to say, to say that if everything was going well. But it wasn't. That it was terrible times, that people took advantage of others, that they considered most people were inferior and there were only a few superior. And those who were superior could do anything they wanted to those who were inferior. And the world isn't like that anymore. And the watchdogs of the ethically challenged have become, have increased over the years. <laughs> and uh, we see a tremendous upsurge right at this time that we are seeing a tremendous uh, indignation here in the United States and in various parts of the world where people are saying, hey, this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You can't just mindlessly accumulate all of this money. It's not fair. This is not to belong to you. That you took, we're the ones who have given you the money and we have gotten no benefit. I'm just briefly, I'm just briefly for the purpose of the future when people have no idea what I'm talking about here in this Occupy Wall Street and many other places. And people are indignant. They feel that their learned cultural ethical system has been disrespected. True? And now we see where it's going to go. Will this ethical structure mean like uh, 1917 in Russia, like uh, the French Revolution? What will happen next? Will we become the indignant? Will we become the new oppressors? Or will something come out of this that will be uh, a correction, a correction of the uh, ethical structure? Or has our ethical structure of this world been ahead of its time? 
maybe we are not ready to have such a strict ethical structure when most of the people can't follow it. These are questions. These are questions that our individual, our individual uh, uh, ethical structure has ramifications in the larger ethical structure of our society. We are the creators of society, but not that fast. Society doesn't move that fast. Have we asked society too, too much? Have we not been able to control the uh, excesses, which seems to be the, uh, the key of these uh, 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 riots and uh, occupations. I don't think they're riots yet, but I hope not. That um, have we not been able to control and prevent people from abusing uh, the ethical system? So these are, these are some of the ramifications of our own personal ethical system. However, the beauty of individuality is that you can have a stronger ethical system than society is prepared to uh, go along with. In other words, you can hold high standards for your own behavior without necessarily everyone else complying with you. And this is how we change, that we become ethically sound and reasonable, that our common sense becomes uh, less intensely about me and more about us. And when our ideas about what is right and what is wrong, when we feel this us arriving, arising in us, that we must be careful that we not push people further or faster than they are capable of changing, or there will be war. And that's what war is about. So, our own ethical system perhaps needs a little bit more repair before we are ready to go to war for righteousness, huh? Like that. And uh, uh, this important, this important uh, uh, benefit that uh, uh, our ethical structure has to move from us as, for example, us being our family or us being our community, to having greater and greater sensations, not just intellectual understanding of who we are, but a, an energetic letting down of the barriers between ourselves and others. So much so that we no longer need to shift benefit to us, that we no longer need to shift benefit to us as individuals, that, but that we see the benefit that comes having a larger scope of benefit. <coughs> and this means that 
grasping and clinging uh, to uh, the selfish needs of ourself end. We think that's impossible right now. We think uh, yesterday, was it yesterday or day before yesterday, uh, in the, our all-day intensive, and uh, talking about generosity, that uh, I challenged each person there to mentally think of an object which they would never, ever be able to give up, an object that they owned, that they would never be able to give away. And I challenged them to find that object and to mentally give it uh, to the person seated next to them without regard for what that person was going to do with it. And uh, uh, like this, this greater giving, that there is a transcendent, there is a transcendent form of discipline which arises in us when the human body and the human mind are too small to contain our virtue. And our virtue bursts forth from us. Our virtue bursts forth from us in a display of caring and compassion which transforms us forever. That we find a selfishness uh, to be utter foolishness and doesn't even make sense anymore. And although we can remain as a human being, that we don't, we, we don't have an understanding of the value of selfishness or the value of self-cherishing. Somehow, something happens and self-cherishing just doesn't make sense anymore. And when that happens, this brings new resources for discipline, for self-discipline, that are not harsh, but it's a joyous uh, form of uh, discipline, practicing the 10 virtues. And the 10 non-virtues just don't make sense. That they're no longer practiced because one has transcended. And this transcendent, this transcendent form of ethics resonates with higher being. It resonates with the values of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And we sing the same songs. We rejoice at the same uh, things. And we come into new, we awaken to new levels of highly cooperative being. In this way, I say, that on the interior and in enlightened society, that we have no separate names. We have no separate names. And this is not a loss. It is a gain. <laughs> it is a higher gain. And so our discipline, which is 
has, be, has evolved from a challenge to our own uh, lifestyle. You know, many people, many people who are uh, beginning Buddhists worry that the kind of job that they hold, that they are expected to have certain uh, unethical attitudes. They're supposed to give favor here and they're supposed to uh, be disrespectful here. They're supposed to hold certain judgments against others. And they read the, read the Buddhist scriptures and they think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to see these people as less valuable and those people as more valuable. And they want their employer to explain again and again. Why is it that we are disrespecting this group of people? Could you tell me again why that is so? And sometimes they find themselves without jobs. Uh, and uh, those who know that's going to happen remain challenged in their, they remain, excuse me, what they call conflicted, conflicted in their values when they are expected to behave in a certain way which is antithetical to their new Buddhist values. I promise you uh, that eventually it will all work out and please work on your own system of values before you start challenging the values of others or challenging the values of society. This is the first thing that new Buddhists want to do is that they want to change the way everybody is doing things or they want to be the authority, the moral authority of uh, of a certain a company, etc. So be careful, be careful, and remember that your strength, uh, your strength, and your moral character does not even have to be spoken in order to have an influence on your environment. So uh, uh, <laughs> these things are, uh, will have to depend on a lot of different factors. Naturally, people who are what they call uh, wealthy from generations have more choices, uh, as they say. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <clears throat> most people feel that uh, the employment that they have, that they would be sorry if they lost their, their, their weekly or monthly income. And so, uh, and so there's a, that you remain in a kind of challenging situation until you are uh, until for a number of different reasons that you arise from that uh, perhaps what you consider to be oppression and that you have more choices or that you are even now many of you in positions to be able to influence others in a very positive way as part of your work that many of you are teachers and you are therapists and you are guides and uh, uh, different kinds of healers, and through your own, uh, through through your own permissions, due to the kind of work that you are doing, that you are presently able to very nicely uh, display valuable and positive uh, influences to others, and like that, like that, uh, people who are spiritually minded wish to be surrounded by other spiritually minded people, isn't that so? That you want to be influenced by them, that you want them to, uh, you want them to stand, stand uh, close around you and to support your, uh, your ethical standards 
And in the same way, you moving away from your spiritual uh, sangha, your spiritual uh, friends, and you are in an, in an environment uh, which is you would might consider not very spiritual, that you can have that kind of influence even in a non-spiritual environment without directly challenging uh, the structure of that business or the structure of that school or the structure of that situation. They don't have to change. You are the one that has to change. And uh, in that way, work on your uh, work hard, uh, practice well, and enjoy the challenge. And really, it's an awful lot of fun. <laughs> so, uh, any questions? Now I'm ready. Yes, dear. You started off the discussion with transcendent discipline, and then I was hearing ethics, and then I was thinking to myself when I thought about the five perfect, six perfections, um, I don't remember hearing, reading discipline yet, but that I was wondering if discipline and ethics are kind of combined and hold each other. I think he's from, from, uh, from the, Gaelic, uh, the Gaelic version that we say uh, ethics. And, uh, uh, but I, I'm sure that we can all agree that ethical discipline is really what we're both talking about. He's emphasizing discipline, we are emphasizing ethics. To me, it's one and the same. Because there is no, it, it, it's a shame. It, it would be a shame uh, to have some idealistic ethics and never have an opportunity to use them. I mean, that's what they're there for. This is the structure, your internal structure from which you are drawing these internal influences. Yes. Yes, dear. Ethically challenged. Yes. But it's like you know, the challenges. The challenges, that's right. The challenge of when you push it a little and when you step back. It's these are the these are the these are the lessons of skillful means. These are the lessons of skillful means. How are we have right now? We have a right now a uh, volatile situation 
where you have people who have strong ethical structure mixed with many people who have strong agendas and who are angry uh, because they have had a loss of money or that they are just angry nature and want to join in to display their anger, to practice their anger, uh, as well as uh, a, a number of different agendas altogether. And the, the um, level of anger is increasing. And perhaps the influence of those people with agenda or those people who, who anger is very easy for them are beginning to have a, a wrong kind of influence on people who have common sense and who have strong ethical structure who should be taking the lead in positive change. And it has become what they call conflictive, conflictive. And uh, uh, this, this is not good, this is not good. For you, which way are you going to go? Are you going to uh, foam at the mouth and stand on the street corner? Or are you interested in uh, this particular kind of change? Or do you feel that what is happening is something that is positive and beneficial and requires your presence uh, to be able to uh, make a uh, reasonable change? I can't make that decision. You, this is, this is your decision uh, to make. I'm not advocating one way or the other. What I am saying is that whatever you are doing, please do not become damaged in your ethics by allowing anger or wrong attitudes to influence you that this challenge is something that is facing each one of us. Facing each one of us. You know, it's like uh, watching a, a, a detective movie or some kind of intriguing movie. And you see the bad guy getting ahead. That, uh, that maybe they hurt another person. Not only did they hurt one person, but now they're hurting another person. And uh, something inside said, somebody should just pound them on the head senseless. Somebody should hit them, shoot them. Our emotion comes up. And of course, the movie maker is also encouraging us toward this. The huh? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they just like, a, they try to adjust your heartbeat. Oh, make it go faster, and then you want to, you also want that other person to be hurt. And when this starts to happen, I, I almost want to just stroke my face and go, now calm down, calm down. These are living beings. This is all, it's a story. These are, this is perfection in its confusion that is happening, this terrible story. What to do? And then eventually reason prevails and the detective gets the bad guy and they throw them in jail. That's that. <laughs> and no matter how nervous I get 
that I, I keep watching because I know the bad guy's going to get it. That's why I really watch detective movies, because I know the bad guy's going to get it. And so we get our, our nervousness uh, raised up, and we want to do something. We want to see the bad guys hurt. Some of the rhetoric, oh, terrible, terrible things. Things that uh, pe people are saying things that, that they should be sorry to have said. Not only did they say them to themselves or to their close friends, but they're telling it to the media <laughs> and spreading dissent. And so how you react, how you react is in accordance with your own values. You will be able to easily see your moral structure uh, by uh, whether you are feeling that your own personal agenda has been attacked or whether you feel that what is right is right. It should be fair uh, for everyone. It should be fair. There should be a fair settlement for everyone. And when you feel that other people are taking advantage of power, then we need to find a way not to disempower them, but to empower others. Yes, Pema. Yeah. You have an intense reaction, and yet you think skillful means are so easy to acquire? You think it's so easy? Do you think, do you think that, you know, Einstein, boy, I, I admire him tremendously. He says the problem cannot be solved with the same... What does the rest of the quote? With the same mindset that created it. So sometimes we have to shift mm -hmm. and look at it in a different way. And suddenly there's some truth on all sides. And then we shift a little more and we say, what is the, what is the right thing to do? I can't answer that. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to be paralyzed by my, by my, my ethical structure. <laughs> but I'm not going to beat someone over the head with it either. Skillful means. That's what we remember. Remember that life is illusory. But the lessons definitely are real. And it's the lessons, not the world, is going to learn from you. But what lesson are you learning? Like that. Lakbadir. Um, you, you said that every high ethical decision one makes changes other things or perceptions. Yes, has a cascade effect. If we wait for the beat.
Yes. Um, but I'm wondering how to, you know, at times you've talked about, you know, there's kind of the intellectual knowing, but then there's the energetic. Yes. But this isn't exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the I'm talking about the supporting the supporting uh, perceptions. Uh, for example, uh, someone may have a very clear uh, a clear a very clear uh, experience of uh, of non-killing, and then they think, "Oh my gosh! Well, you've got non-killing of people, but you've got non-killing of animals, non-killing of insects, and and this ramification and." How can I do this if this is what I believe, etc.? And are there subtle forms of non-killing? What are the ramifications of this? What perceptions do I hold which feels that this is still correct when I know that this is more correct? Or what is the balance between these perceptions? How, you know, uh, for example, Jain, the Jain uh, religion, they, I believe it's like a form of Buddhism, uh, but uh, Jain practitioners, that the highest form of Jain uh, holiness is to starve oneself to death. That uh, wearing a mask, wearing a mask uh, so that no bug uh, can enter into their mouth and uh, always sweeping in front of their feet uh, to sweep any insects out of the way. And uh, many stories about highly evolved giant uh, saints who voluntarily die uh, because they won't eat. Now, I personally feel that this is not so useful and so we would have to hold, in order to not die, we would have to hold some kind of perception that uh, eating is okay. And so we have a balance between the idea of absolute non-killing and maintaining human life in order to be a benefit to others and to evolve in our own spiritual practice. So you can't have you can't have a a rough twist on your uh, perceptions that you must uh, have a a cooperative a cooperative uh, perceptual uh, support for new perceptions and new ethical new ethical vows like that. This is why, for example, in uh, for those of you who are ordained, that uh, in my previous life and also. Uh, in this life, that I felt that uh, that uh, many people who, uh, who who took ordination vows were so stiff and rigid in their vows. Uh, naturally, you're not going to break. <laughs> naturally, you're not going to break your vows. But when you hold them so roughly and tightly, oh, this is so wrong. Oh, these people are so bad. Ah, this is the only way to be, etc. Then these people very easily break their vows. They very easily break because of their rigidity. That one should be uh, very soft and gentle and uh, not rigid holding, holding their vows. And those are people, they still hold their vows. They're not breaking any of their vows. 
but they're not so rigid that they, uh, that they break. And so uh, our ethical structure is uh, comprised of karma, our karma from previous lives, which gave us our tendencies, which is the karma from this life, which influences we have uh, allowed or been, have been perpetrated upon us, and uh, as well as sheer willpower that uh, we have chosen uh, the high road and we will not deviate from that. And so uh, in the face of our karma and our influences that we, uh, we blend, we blend our lives with the lives of those around us and the world that is around us and how our inner environment uh, interacts with the world around us. And then uh, it's not so easy to decide, oh, I'm doing good or I'm doing bad. This is not the bodhisattva, a way of practicing ethics. ethics. You just keep doing. You just keep doing and don't worry. Don't worry. Just keep going and uh, do the best you can. Huh? If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on whatever platform you're listening. You can stay up to date on White Conch news and events at white-conch.org updates and can find all our social media links and blog posts as well as these podcast episodes at white-conch.org wcblog. Thanks for listening and don't forget to check out the next episode as we continue our exploration of compassion.